0: We've spent the first part of this series dedicated to the movers in the travel and hospitality industry. But what about the company helping us to shake up the occasional stiff drink when lockdown was taking its toll? This week, the Chief starts to profile those shaping the experience of the places in which we live, work and play. Today we meet Eric Valla of Remy Cointreau, who joined as CEO of the brand in 2019. With stints at Dior and Louis Vuitton, Valla has a wealth of experience in the world of French luxury brands, but finds a particular joie de vivre in his role within the drinks industry. From his office in Paris, Mr. Valla shares his key learnings from this rocky period and tells us why Rémy Cointre's already impressive portfolio will always be a work in progress plus as bars and restaurants worldwide dust off their shutters, is another roaring 20s en route and has off-trade made up for the margins in the meantime. I'm Tyler Brulé, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle24. Eric, very good to... Talk to you. I'm I'm interested because as we just kick off this interview right now, I have a little sheet of paper in front of me, which, of course, looks at uh, some of your numbers uh, from from the past year, and I maybe want you to, perhaps explain or dispel maybe a bit of a myth because I think the world thinks that within this lockdown. Everyone has been consuming spirits, wine, beer like crazy, but you're not alone. We've seen a dip uh, amongst a number of companies in your space. So I'm wondering what's happened here because, yeah, the prevailing view is that everyone is stocking up when they go to, to retail. But are these numbers reflective of obviously a world where restaurants and hotels have largely been closed?
1: Well, it's uh, it's fair to say indeed that we're lucky to be in a resilient business. I think the world is split into two indeed since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. You have on one side the off-trade and the other side on-trade. On-trade is severely hit. We might discuss it further on later. But as you said, our sales overall have been resisting much better than what we would have expected thanks to half trade, which in fact tells a few things about the market, about our market of wine spirits. First, it says that people have shifted towards consumption at home more than what we would have expected, including for cocktails, which are not necessarily as obvious. Uh, as long drinks or uh, on the rocks you know drinks. This shows also that in fact people have probably uh, more time to spend to discover new things. They have less money to spend on travels and probably they have shifted some of the spend to uh, let's say home entertainment which includes wine spirits. And what we've witnessed above all is an upgrade in fact. We saw for instance in the US people shifting from uh, brandy to cognac or from one grade in cognac to the upper grade. We've seen the amazing uh, success of tequilas as well. So, in fact, the U.S., which is the number one wine spirits market, you have seen uh, off-trade, so really uh, retail stores, booming and overcompensating the very big difficulty we've been witnessing, especially for our partners in on-trade. But this, what is true in the U.S. is not necessarily true worldwide. Huh? It's true in the U.K., where we saw also a big boom of e-commerce, as much as in the U.S., much less in Europe, Southern Europe, or stuff like this. And China is another world. China managed the crisis in a, in a much more, uh, I would say, um, severe way than we did. And they have turned the page of crisis of, of the pandemic. And you see that bars and restaurants have reopened since last uh, July. And it's 90% of the bars that have reopened and 90% of the people don't wear masks and 90% of attendance in these locations. So, you know, th- the world is really split between off trade and on trade and between China and the rest of the world.
0: Eric, I just want to spend a little bit of time on this off-trade. Also, when you look at the world as well, as you said, okay, you can look at a market like the United States, you can look at the UK, where yes, maybe there was an uptick in terms of the trend of people mixing cocktails at home. But if you look to other corners of the world, on the continent uh, here in Europe, uh, but also to Asia, did you see the same type of uptick there as well? As you said, China has been a bubble almost throughout all of this. Uh, but I'm wondering, this off trade is it is it similar uh, all over the world in terms of people yeah actively wanting to go out and of course you know buy the right cognac to consume at home or mix the right drinks at home, or or some parts of the world still, I wouldn't say a problem, but maybe a challenge for you uh, to get people to to open up a bar at home?
1: No, no, you're right to point it out. I think uh, even for off-trade itself, the the world is split. You have on one side, let's say, mostly the US and the UK. But if you take Southeast Asia, if you take Europe, generally speaking, uh, with the exception of some countries, you see indeed that uh, first on trade is closed and you don't see the up- upside in off trade as much as you see it in the US or, and plus, you know, um, I think we should, uh, we should differentiate spirits from wines as well. If you take France, for instance, people are more to wines. So it's more interesting to look at wines probably. Than purely spirits, but clearly uh, it's not homogeneous at all. Some countries are still closed and are still witnessing a slow off-trade, as much on top of the closure of on-trade. So there is a real disparity. And even in the US, you know, on-trade is not totally closed. You mean some restaurants are open, some bars are open. It's just the, the, the sanitary conditions, which are very different. If you take France, uh, all bars and restaurants are closed even though they are closed, you don't see the uptake in trade that you see uh, in the US.
0: Eric, we're speaking at a time we're coming to the end of Q1. Uh, we've been in this for well over a year now, uh, it's certainly in many corners of the world anyway. And as you look forward, you know, you've know you got this, this Q1 behind you, you've got 2020 uh, behind you. If you reflect on the numbers, uh, if you're sitting around the boardroom table, of course, uh, talking to your biggest family, uh, founding family who are investors, of course, other investors in, in the business as well, maybe let's talk about learnings first. What would you say are are, are really the key things that, that you, as the leader of this business, learned from last year? From a management point of view, from a, a certainly a, a consumption point of view, anything stand out for you?
1: First, I'd say, you know, uh, uh, if I try to be uh, chronological, I don't know if it's English, but anyway at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all locked down, where for the first time in the world, all our factories, bottling factories worldwide were closed. This had never happened in more than 300 years of history. We spent our days uh, taking uh, thousands of decisions, not necessarily all big decisions, but we had to decide very quickly. And we were 100% dedicated to short-term issues. And I realized how important it was at that time to make sure that uh, we have a long-term view that we uh, share with our teams, a visibility. Uh, you know, It's important to know why you do things and where you head to, or else the day-to-day management of the business is becoming increasingly difficult. So one learning was, when you are overloaded with short-term, it's even more important to also think long-term and build a strategy in the long run. Second is uh, flexibility. Uh, we are in a world that is changing ever faster, and nobody can predict and strangely enough, we built our ten year plan it was probably more easy than to build the three year three months plan at that time and we need to build a long term vision, but we also know that we will need to adapt. The world is more unpredictable than it was, and this is it then on on the management side, I think uh, uh, the first uh, visio conference I made with the uh, with the the whole teams worldwide at the beginning of the pandemic. I insisted a lot on, on one thing is let's make sure that being far away from each other makes us being even closer. So communication, communication, communication. And I would say even benevolence and respect you know, it sounds a bit maybe candid, but it does not prevent from being demanding. But it's very important when you cannot meet people, when you cannot communicate, that you make sure uh, you keep a good uh, level of relationship. Uh, and, and also, you know, if only if only if you want to keep the creativity, creativity is not coming from a visio conference. It's coming from people meeting in the corridors, from people, you know, by chance having a discussion on a topic and the idea is coming up. So. It was very important to make sure we keep having fluid communication beyond the formal ones to achieve keeping on being creative and preparing the future. I believe that we should not draw conclusions too quickly on what has happened, but at the same time, we should not ignore uh, what has changed and what will probably shape uh, the world in the future. While not over-exaggerating them, there are a lot of trends that I think have accelerated through COVID or that are going to be uh, 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 driving changes in the future.
0: It's interesting that, um, and I'm sure it must be a challenge as well when you're talking to to colleagues, fellow management, uh, of course, uh, yeah, it, it, investors, and and of course the media as well, because everyone is looking for the CEO's prediction. Where is the world going? What's Eric's view on you know, travel retail? Is duty free going to bounce back? You know, all of these different things, and yet, you know, one theme that we've seen throughout this series is that you know, we go back in many ways to the way things were, uh, and and of course. You know, we saw that there were some bright moments uh, last summer, where you know many corners of the world returned to something that looked like normal for a while, and and people were out on the street and they were uh, yeah clinking glasses, they were drinking cocktails again. There was there was a great a great feeling, but uh, maybe why don't we go back to travel retail for a moment? When you look at certain parts of, of the business, do you think that you're going to have to come back in a very different way? So you know maybe could you argue that of course uh, yeah you used to go through Hong Kong Airport or through Charles de Gaulle. And yeah, I mean, you had people coming from all over the world. You had it easy. Now at a time, of course, when it's going to be, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be a bit of a a steep climb, uh, perhaps back into the world of travel. Do you see that there's going to be, a, let's say, a different type of fight? Do you have to go and, and market yourselves in a different way? Or do you sit back as actually, you know what, the planes will fill up eventually, you know, Air France's route network will be the same and and duty-free just goes back to, to normal potentially?
1: You know, just a few comments on all you said and before I address the travel retail question, which is obviously a very fair one. Huh? Just to say that uh, when I lived in Japan for three years, uh, what I would like to say is uh, when I left Japan, the only thing I knew is that I would never understand fully Japan. As you said, we asked a lot about our predictions. I think we should remain very humble. And the thing I know is that I don't know. Of course, like everyone and being exposed potentially to more Problematics or more worldwide problematics, I have a certain level of visibility. So I have my own view, but I also have to acknowledge the fact that whatever I believe, it might not occur. And if it occurs, it might occur in a different way. Second thing is um, back to normal. Indeed, there will be a kind of back to normal. There will be some kind of revenge spending, revenge traveling, and so on. I think there will be three types of clients, you know, for us the revenge spenders, the values seekers and the people who will have a tighter budget because they've been suffering from the crisis. But I think that beyond this and beyond the back to normal that we will inevitably see, people will be willing to travel to celebrate and so on. There are some underlying trends that are probably more long term that are going to shape our future, even though uh, they might be a bit less visible than they are now. I think it has accelerated, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's the search for values or stuff like this. And I don't think we should ignore it. Now, back to your question of travel retail. I think that, like everyone, I believe that we can anticipate a kind of, uh, let's say, back to The level of 18, 19, or 19, 20 even, in maybe 23, 24. So it's going to take time. The most optimistic people believe 22. I believe more in 23, 24. And I think that at that time, we will have recovered the same level. And to recover the growth we would have had without the pandemic, it's probably uh, 10 years from now or 8 to 10 years from now. Now for me, the real question is, what will happen to business trips also? because this is a different topic. You know, all companies worldwide have discovered they can work differently. I was a kind of a hectic traveler everywhere for business. I discovered that, of course, I need to keep traveling, but I know also now that I probably don't need to travel as much as in the past, because I've discovered that I can compensate some of the trips with video conferences and stuff like this, so long as I do not only do this, of course. Plus, sorry, traveling a lot, is not necessarily good for the planet. I think that the biggest issue will be business trips. Will there remain as many? Or will we witness what some groups have already announced, which is a sharp decrease of the travel and expenses for business trips, which will impact uh, the margin of uh, the uh, air flight companies because it's business class. So I think there's a question there. But I believe that when it comes to leisure... People will maybe do less travels uh, very far away to Asia from Europe or to the US uh, from Asia or stuff like this. I think it will be more bubbles travels rather than line travels, you know, so travels within Asia, travels within Europe, travels within the Americas. And then it might take a little bit of time before it comes back to normal.
0: You raise a really interesting point here, which I hadn't fully considered because what I was thinking about the impact, and when you talk about uh, travel, so okay, so on one side, I'm thinking, yes, maybe Lufthansa is not going to be buying as as much cognac, or they're not going to be loading as much rum on the plane. Again, of course, for consumption on board, but also for purchase on board, or same in the airports. But I guess there's another interesting side as well, which is just the corporate travel and the expense account, and not just the expense account that yes, you might bring back, uh, yeah, a bottle of champagne, or there is some there's some gifts for clients, but also that. You're not going to maybe have that big night out in Seoul. It's it's interesting. It's a component that probably a lot of people aren't factoring in right now when they think about this evaporation of of travel, what we talk about room nights. But it's interesting, the impact, what it means when it comes to corporate hospitality. And we know, of course, corporate hospitality has been under threat for compliance reasons and and, various reasons over the past few years. But nevertheless, it is still an important part of of business as well. And I'm, I'm wondering, I know you can't go out and do it, an advertising campaign about why it's great to take clients out for drink, Eric. But do you think we've lost a little bit of that as well? Is the narrative too much about efficiency at the moment, as opposed to it, also a little bit about humanity, that, that good things happen over a dining table?
1: No, of course. I think, uh, strangely enough, uh, we might take a very concrete example. But if you take a video conference, it lasts one hour and you deal with it uh, and you're efficient and you've done the agenda. If you do a meeting live, it's going to take longer, especially with French people who are very talkative, and you might not have filled in the whole agenda or dealt with all the topics of the agenda. But I think we need both, and and this applies also to our personal lives. I'm in a business, Wine in Spirits, which is about products you share, products you celebrate with. You don't do it on your own, alone, uh, uh, aside, you know. So we all miss these moments as well, and we need, I think, both uh, why not be more efficient with more visio uh, conference but also be more let's say uh, build on deeper human relationships because uh, being more efficient on the way we work on visio conference could also help us work on trips and on meetings proper meetings that are also Go more in depth. Uh, go more into understanding the culture, uh, understanding the way the retail is organized. Real market visits, you know, than pure uh, business meetings in a room. When you travel, maybe it will change a bit the nature, the nature of of the the the, the, the business meetings as well as the personal ones, you know. Because for the let's say day-to-day uh, business, uh, pure business topics, a visio can do it. But there's something that will never be replaced. It's the quality of the relationship, which is 50% of the work.
0: You touched a little bit earlier on this. There might be a segment of revenge spenders, revenge entertainers that that we're going to see. And of course, we've had... When we've been talking to CEOs for the past year on this program, this whole notion of the return to the Roaring Twenties, all of these types of things have have flashed up again and again. Many many are saying now actually know the political currents of the day that people are going to want to get serious, and they've been through a very a very serious time. So uh, therefore, we're not going to see this this incredible sort of hedonistic bounce back. I'm wondering if if you have a view on this because you, you just touched on, you know, you're dealing with your customers. There are club owners, there are bar owners who are shuttered. There are also club and bar owners around the world who are open as well. So I'm wondering if you can... Maybe look to any markets or certainly the dialogue that you're having on the street with your core B2B clients. How are they feeling? Do you you think there's a sense that people do want the doors to fly open again? And we're in for hopefully a fantastic summer, but also, you know, we move into then the autumn and Christmas as good as it ever was.
1: I have two ways of uh, trying to foresee the future there. One is indeed discussions we can have with our partners who are directly talking to the clients, also our own markets uh, in many countries. And I don't know if it will be everywhere and everyone, but for sure, there will be a sense of let us treasure the moment and let us uh, celebrate. And so I believe in some kind of, uh, I don't like the word revenge, in fact, by the way, but some kind of... uh, Yes, uh, we've been through difficult times. We have deserved some uh, nice moments together. So I believe in some kind of back to what it used to be before and potentially even more. I don't know if it's going to be the 20s. It's very difficult to say this, but for sure there will be a bounce back there. And you know, the other way I look at it is speaking to my children. They are between uh, 20 and 26 years old or speaking to friends. What I hear is we are all looking for regaining some freedom and taking advantage of it. So one way or another, some people are going to go back to some sports they are not doing anymore. Some people are going to meet friends. Some people are going to revisit the bars and restaurants they are meeting. But for sure, I think there will be a kind of uh, energizing period that uh, will come from many fronts.
0: So if you look forward and i'm hoping like you that we move into yeah a bit of a hedonistic time i think a few drinks on the uh, the deck of a nice boat or on the terrace of a nice hotel anywhere on the med or yeah any in any nice setting in the world uh, would be nice and and long may it run now if we agree that that's that's coming down the track and we all look forward to it do you think you have the right portfolio now? When you look at all of the different brands under the Control constellation, are you set up for the future or are there maybe some areas that you're missing? Say, ah, I, you know, listen, I wish we, we would have been bigger in a microbrewery space. How do you view your portfolio moving forward?
1: I believe a portfolio is always work in progress, huh? And that's why we we are still there. When we were there 300 years ago, I think we need to uh, listen to what's happening. And a portfolio is never a final, nor perfect. Huh? So I wouldn't say it for our portfolio either. Having said that, I mentioned the upgrading trend. I think uh, that uh, for this trend, our portfolio is very interesting. We have a portfolio of, uh, let's say, products which price on the high tier of their categories because they deserve it. And I think this is a trend. People are going to drink less, but better. This I believe in. Uh, This is a long-term trend that has accelerated with COVID. We see the upgrade. And there, I believe we have the right portfolio and we have the right strategic approach that we've been promoting for years. Does it mean the portfolio is uh, finalized and and perfect fit for the future? No. I think we have uh, some... uh, Anyway, short-term priorities, focusing on ourselves and improving ourselves, we have a lot to do on our side. But once we have gone through this, we have a kind of transformation plan going on. For sure, there are opportunities we should look at even more so as we can afford it. And uh, if you ask me, I would say that uh, we should look at potential brands or products that fit our values, terroir, people and time. So with a strong sense of terroir which, for instance, could drive us to a category like tequila, which is booming, which is high-end, and which is displaying a real sense of terroir. So it's always going to be a work in progress. I'm not saying we are going to acquire something anytime soon, but uh, we do consider in our uh, five, ten-year vision acquisitions that would uh, be an interesting addition to our portfolio.
0: So if we look at your bar shelf, uh, the bar shelf of any of our core uh, listeners, mine, uh, we listen. Everyone can agree. We went through this gin period. Probably the gin moment uh, has lasted much longer than uh, many would have thought. Uh, can you? Are you? I know. You've already said very clearly you're not up for making predictions. But I'm going to. Um, I'm going to hold. I'm going to hold you to making one anyway. Is there a territory that you see us moving into? Are we moving into a rum moment? I mean, because you can only you can only have botanicals, uh, you know, out of a gin gin bottle for so long. Do you see things moving in a direction? Yeah, I mean, of course, tequila has been with us. It's kind of been up and down in the States. It maybe hasn't taken off globally uh, the way it's done uh, in the U.S. market. But is there anything that you look at right now saying, yeah, this is probably coming down the track. This is going to be a good bet in the spirit space?
1: You know, I might surprise you, but we're still looking at jeans, huh? uh, for instance. You know, gin is in fact, uh, indeed, if you take the U.K., gin is a mature product and the U.K. is a mature market. If you take the U.S., it's all about to come. So for me, gin is still a very interesting category because in the number one wine spirits market, we see it growing now, but it's still very small. And we have uh, with the botanist, I believe a very interesting uh, gin, which is also by the way, uh, leveraging on the terroir of uh, Ayla, uh, where we do our whiskey as well, which I think is a very interesting uh, uh, brand. So we are looking also at growing our gin, for instance, uh, in the US. Now, uh, if you look at categories and if you look at them worldwide, I would say first, uh, I think the pandemic has accelerated the discovery of cognac for many of the clients. It's very interesting to see that. We are a natural upgrade of many drinks potentially with cognac. So that's why I said also, I believe we have a good portfolio because Rémi Martin is uh, really focusing on the higher end of the cognac uh, in general. First, tequila, you made the comment that is very US. It is true, but I believe that uh, it has the potential to spread. It might take time, but it has the potential to spread. Rome is a very interesting category because it's been all over the place. It was very, very, uh, not necessarily a value-driven uh, category. While there is a lot of know-how behind it, And uh, it's a brown spirit. So I believe that Rome has a bright future, particularly on the high end. And that's what we've witnessed over the past uh, few years. It's uh, in every single market throughout the world, maybe a bit less in Asia where Rome is still on the rise. But we've seen a very interesting trend towards high-end rums. So if you ask me about rums, I believe in the future of high-end rums. We are very happy to have Mount Gay, which is, uh, as you know, the uh, oldest non-discontinued distillery more than 300 years in Barbados.
0: Finally, uh, just before we go, I'm very curious. When you look out your window in Paris, you might have to squint a little bit, but you can look, of, of course, across to other big players in the luxury space who've really diversified. And they are, of course... They've got spirits and they've got champagne houses and they've got fashion and they've got interest in cruise companies, hotels, you name it. Uh, When you think about Rémy Cointreau, of course, you're not of the scale of some of those companies I'm talking about. Do you see room, though, for maybe expanding at at the borders? I'm not saying that you're going to go and buy a, a German sandal company, but I am thinking, you know, is there room? In a hotel space. Uh, I mean you've got some incredibly strong brands. Is there room? And almost do you have to move into that territory? Because yeah, everyone else is doing it, and and of course someone is going to, yeah, will end up sort of devouring your seller if if you don't do it?
1: I'm not sure we have to do it. I know a lot of groups are going for it. I believe that it's very important to be driven in our business also by occasions, consumption moments, so at some point hospitality is part. Of our business model. Does it mean we need to acquire hotels? I'm not sure. There are many ways of addressing the topic. So I'm not sure we have to. But what I can tell for sure is that there is in the group a lot of know-how, a lot of, let's say, uh, marketing, branding capabilities, and that uh, we could imagine a certain level of stretch provided we remain consistent with our DNA and our current scope. So hospitality is not irrelevant, of course, not uh, inconsistent for sure. But again, I'm not sure we have to. I think there are many ways of addressing the experience we offer to our clients. And this is what we're working on. It's not necessarily through a pure diversification or acquisitions. Not that we will never do it. And hospitality is one example. There are many others that I'm not going to disclose here, but that could make sense uh, for a group like ours for sure. So if you look at a very long-term perspective or long-term perspective, there are opportunities we should look at. Not necessarily that we are forced to, but uh, that they because they could help us leverage also some of our know-how and extend the franchise of our brands indeed. So I see them more as opportunities than as uh, threats.
0: Last question before we go, it's an easy question. You talked about terroir a little bit earlier, uh, this notion of, of, of provenance. Uh, do you see, uh, Remy are you a, a global company, international brand? Uh, and, and within that, uh, is the French story important or not?
1: It is. Uh, not for all our brands. We have a Brook uh, from Isla in Scotland, our whiskies, uh, which have just been awarded B Corp, uh, which uh, obviously uh, uh, its Terroir Isla, and we respect that. As a group, um, you know what I like is the fact that Cognac, for instance, is a city of 18,000 people. It's almost a village. And it's one of the most renowned names worldwide. We shall never forget where we come from. But I, so yes, the French touch is important when it comes on, on top of that to lifestyle. Having said that, I think more and more we need to make sure that we take into account the local context, the local specificities. This is where there is more complexity than in the past. It is not about imposing a specific way of life, way of doing business. It is about making sure we don't lose our DNA while composing with many more elements to make sure we stay relevant.
0: My thanks to Eric Valla, CEO of Remic Quantro, for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs. And tune in next week as we stay in the world of hospitality to hear why one industry giant thinks a travel boom is inevitable. This episode of The Chiefs was produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu with assistance from Desiree Bentley. I'm Tyler Brulé in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening.